Don't get that excited, folks. You may not like what I have to say. No, I'm kidding. You, well, no, I'm not. You might not like what I have to say, but I just pray that it, it speaks to you. So let me pray. I'm going to pray for this message, and I'm praying in front of you. I've already prayed, not in front of you, but we're all going to pray together. So bow your heads. Let's pray really quick. Father, this is, we come here to worship you. We didn't come here to listen to me, and we didn't come here to uh, uh, waste our time. We didn't come here just to prove a point or something like that. Lord, we want to hear from you. We, want to, we, wanted, to, we wanted to worship you. We want to encounter you. We want to hear from you, Lord. And since you're using people to speak to each other in your place uh, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, I, uh, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill me and that you would help me to speak these words and then you would bless our ears to hear them and you'd speak to our hearts and change our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pastor Jeff's been uh, going through a series of messages about ways that we receive the kingdom of God. Um, and I encourage you to go back to listen to them, especially if you like to be challenged. I don't think any of them have been um, lightweight. They've all been pretty heavy uh, or serious, not heavy. That's different. Serious, like bringing up real um, concerns, real points, real things we need to all be paying attention to. And so I have one that fits right into this, uh, this framework. And I, and I want to say something before we start that Pastor Jeff and I, and we, we don't have really, I want to say this the right way, we don't really care what you do. Like, we're not sitting here going, man, I want to control all these people that come to our church, because that sounds like fun. You know, like, I got enough of my own problems. I don't, you know, I'm not going to be, like, I don't sit around thinking all the time, man, I really, you know, the only type of concern we have about what y'all do is pastoral, meaning like, man, the same way you would feel about your child if you were a parent. You're like, gosh, I don't like my son or my daughter doing this thing that hurts them or hurts other people or making wrong decisions, and you feel a certain way. That's the way we would feel about it. As far as controlling people or making you do the things we want, I don't think we have any interest in that at all. We actually talk about it. There are people in the church that struggle with this kind of control thing. Um, and I'm not, put, and I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying that nothing we're talking about, especially in a series of messages like this, has anything to do with, oh, yeah, you just want to tell me what to do with my time out of some sort of weird power trip or anything like that. That's not what's going on. So as I talk today, if you're tempted by the enemy to filter what I'm saying through that, you need to consciously say, that's not what's going on. Because frankly, I don't care in that way at all. I don't want to, like, there's Bible verses that talk about standing before people and talking on behalf of God and like, sure as heck, but you better be ready to, you know, you gotta, you, you're judged to a higher standard. So I don't take any of it for granted. I take it quite seriously, but at the same time, um, you have to be a watchman and tell people the truth. And when you see something that's a problem... But it's serious. You've got to tell people in a serious way. And so that's, that's my little pre-speech. So um, getting off the grid as a key to receiving the kingdom of God. I want to read you this quote that I found from a non-Christian source. Is that enticing? 
Existential psychology has shown the depth of the human need to matter, make a difference, and to feel that you have a significant place in this world. We all need to feel that we do something that matters within the frame of reference that, that defines our experiential word. I'm going to say that again. We all need to feel that we do something that matters within the frame of reference that defines our experiential world. The question is, what this frame of reference is. So we all need to matter in some way that we can understand or that our culture can understand or, you know, this is a human condition according to existential philosophy or psychology and is a human condition that Christianity discusses at length. I think we have quite a good answer for it. But the questions we're talking about is how do we measure people? How do we measure other people? And specifically, how do we measure ourselves? And this problem has been going on since the fall of man, since the dawn of humanity, since it's a human problem or human need that God has designed himself to fill as our redeemer. But we constantly are trying to fill with other things. We'll get into a lot of that in the future or in the latter part of this message. But the thing that... I want to talk about is I think we're in a unique time where that need is uh, being so inflamed that it's almost harming our ability to receive the godly healing or restoration or whatever that we're so it's like it's a it's a human problem we've had for millennia. And now I'm, I'm making an argument today that it's being so inflamed in our culture and around the world that we're almost starting to lose the ability to even receive the, the healing from it. God will work through this, but I'm just making the point. And I think it's because of two things specifically that are new to our humanity. The struggle, thousands of years old. What's new then? Social media and technology. And it's not just one, it's not just the other. And let me just, first off, before we even get into this, social media is not evil, okay? Technology is not evil. I have those. Jeff just told you to check in on Facebook. So if it was evil, we probably wouldn't be doing that, okay? <laughs> so they can be used for quite good purposes. They're amoral. They have no morality to them in and of themselves. They're just technology. They're just tools. They're just things. But... They inflame this desire within us in ways that I'm going to get into that are so destructive that I think we have to talk about it. And we talk about it kind of a lot, and it's because of the concern. I don't care how much time you spend on Facebook every day. You see what I'm saying? But I do care if it's destroying your life or your mind or, it's, you know, or the enemy. You know, it's one thing you talk about health. This isn't good for you. We go, oh, yeah, I know, I know. But I'm actually starting to think that the enemy of our Lord is using these things to help us destroy ourselves, that I would actually probably start applying the word demonic to some of this stuff because of how deep it reaches into our soul and is destructive. So you can take that and do what you say. But I have some other uh, quotes I want to read from some other psychological analysis that people were doing. There was, this guy was suggesting that this change is so significant that he would even argue that we should maybe start classifying humanity as a different species now, like post-technology. I don't know if that's true, but I read this quote and I was like, I actually think this is a helpful quote. He says, a new species is born. 
He says he calls it homo globulus or global man. And where he says this, we are defined by our intimate connection to the global infotainment network, which has turned ranking and rating people on scales of wealth and celebrity into an obsession. And then that leads to this, another quote from a different person. Vanity and narcissism, the compulsive need to be admired and praised, undermine one's courage. For, for one, or the, the person, then fights for someone else's conviction rather than their own. I'll read that again. Vanity and narcissism, the compulsive need to be admired and praised, undermine one's courage. For one then fights on someone else's conviction rather than one's own. This is the thing where you say, the crowd, you tell your kids, the crowd you hang out with affects you. You know, it's because you start to value their opinion of you and your ranking in this, you know, and so if it's a bad crowd, you're going to start doing bad stuff because you need that affirmation, that kind of thing. If it's a good crowd, maybe good things. But the point is, all of this is kind of a busted way of understanding the world. It's not what God is intending us to do. And it's just being made worse by social media and specifically cell phones. We've all got these cell phones and we've all instantly pulled this stuff up. And you, I thought of some, some details, I guess. Like, what about this is so different? What about this is making this worse? And there's a few details I thought of. One is immediacy. You don't have any, like, even with Facebook, when you used to have to sign in on a computer, you had to, like, try, you know? Like, there was a computer on a desk, and you had to sign into it. Like, the kids nowadays are like, what are you even talking about, you know? And it wasn't an app. It was a web page, you know, <laughs> which it still is. But the point is, you had to, there was, like, a wall there that was keeping you from doing things or at least making it more difficult to do things than what, you know, it used to be. Then the other thing is the specificity. Now, this is an important thing because it's not really just social media. And social media, you go, well, well, good thing I'm not on Facebook like all these other sinners here. <laughs> Your Facebook might just be some sort of like weird, like, I don't know, list server about some sort of very specific political thing that you really care about. And you just read all about whatever that is and how stupid everybody that disagrees with that is and how, you know, and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. That's just a social media just like anything else. So don't get stuck on Facebook. It's mostly not Facebook. And if you're under 30 or 40, it's not Facebook. Do you see what I'm saying? So, but the point is we're all feeding ourselves. And the, in, the, the way, you know, news, for example, back in the Walter Cronkite world, there's like four channels and they have to sell advertisement, guys. Like, don't lose sight of this. This is not like, I'm going to provide you with this information out of the kindness of my heart from ABC News. I'm Peter Jennings. Good night. It's not just, I'm just doing this public service. They're making a lot of money. How do they make money? They sell ads. It used to be commercials, right? And in order to make those ads worthwhile, they have to have an audience, which is what we are, okay? The, in, the thing that's different now is it used to be Walter Cronkite is going to be on one channel, one of four or three or whatever, you know. So they have to kind of, we have, like, they're like, the viewership was first off crazy high because every single person is watching one of these channels in the United States. So it's millions, you know. Like, we'll never get to these levels ever again, probably, except for the fact that there's a lot more people now. But whatever. The point is, percentage of viewership is so high back then. In order to keep everybody happy, they got to be honest because you can't, I'm going to always slant everything to the political left because that's my market. 
It works. In that day and age, you gotta, you got to show news that's attractive to the conservatives and the liberals, which helps you be more honest. I'm going to be, this is a frankness. Doing that helped them be more honest. And they actually saw it as their job. Now, you can be so specific with the advertisement and what you encounter, meaning like you're not watching ABC News and Peter Jennings anymore. Like, you might, but no one else is, okay? (laughs) And everybody else is getting it through an app or a news channel online or some kind of thing that's so specific that you're not getting any information contrary to the opinion that's being shared with you. And it's not just political things. It can be religious things. It can be anything. Any ideological subgroup can be so subdivided that now you're being just fed what you need to keep you there to sell you ads. And the thing is, we're all doing it. And it's messing up our brains. (laughs) There's more we could say about this, but we're going to move on. The other thing is this. In these social medias, in this online infotainment network this guy was talking about, we now are all subject to the burden of being a brand. Or a platform, as Pastor Jeff was just talking about. Like, what's my platform? You know, what's my brand? I'm like, you're not a brand, you're a person, you know? So, like, how dehumanizing is viewing yourself as a brand? Now, I'm not sticking my head in the sand. I realize how these things work. And I want to make a, uh, a point about that. The, uh, I grew up in this world. And I'm, I'm making this point just because I want to give myself credibility in front of you guys right now. I grew up, my dad was a cinematographer. And I have a photo of him just because it's interesting. And it really has no bearing on, you know, anything other than that's a cool photo. But that's my dad. And that was my dad when, you know, we were growing up or whatever. And he made movies for a living. He still does. And two of my brothers do this. They're professional photographers and cinematographers. And they make a lot of money doing that. <laughs> I'm the black sheep who works at a church. <laughs> No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. They're, they're very supportive. But one of my brothers went with me to Africa. We made that video a couple weeks ago. That's why it looks so good. So this, this stuff comes. So what I'm saying is social media didn't exist until like, you know, about 15 years ago, depending on maybe 10, if you really want to say when did it hit the whole world. Um, I grew up in the same mindset ever since I was zero. Because the way Hollywood works is not that different. It's just they're better at it, okay? And people who point cameras at things um, get paid money because they can make it look a certain way. And the ability to change that certain way makes you make more money. <laughs> and I've stood, that was another frustrating thing. So I'm with my brother in Africa, and we even, we have like the same phone. We're like, oh, that's a really cool mountain. And I'm like, Ch-ch-ch. And then he's like standing beside me and goes, Ch-ch-ch. and then we look at the photos. I'm like, what the heck, man? Like, I, I literally pointed that at the same thing, and your photo is like 10 times better, you know? And uh, it's a God-given talent, and he's using it for the you know, glory of the Lord or whatever. But, the, but you learn really quick as a small child, especially when your dad's good at these things, that you could take an image and present it to a group of people, and they have an emotional reaction. And you're like, well, that's interesting. And then you just ever so slightly change how you present that image, and the emotional reaction is completely different. So... I'm not the only one who knows this. All of Hollywood knows it. All of all of these people know it. And they use it as a tool to make money. <laughs> and in order to make money, you've got to control people. 
And I'll even go so far as to say this. It's been a struggle for me working in a church because as soon as you stand in front of people on a stage-like thing and there's people looking at you, the dynamics of show business and what we're doing here don't always conflict as much as they should, okay? And you watch people in the church and you're like, man, that guy's a really good, you know, entertainer, you know? And forget anointing, forget calling, forget any of those sorts of things. Some people are just good, you know what I mean? And uh, what I'm trying to say is it's been a struggle for me to try to sort these things out, you know? Because it's not all evil and it's not all bad. And it's not bad to present it. Like, like this video we made for Tim and Kathy in Africa is like we're showing you this because we think it's important. But that's obviously implied and injected into everything we're sharing. Anyway, point is this. Now everybody's got to suffer this burden of presenting themselves as a brand. Most of us are bad at it. It's a dehumanizing way to look at yourself. And that's the way we're being taught to think because of the framework we're finding ourselves living in, whether you're aware of it or not at all, which most of us aren't. And I can prove how big of a business this is. Steve Jobs, the guy who did Apple computers and everything, when he died, he was worth $10 billion. That's a lot of money. Most of his money, though, is because he bought Pixar from George Lucas, and it turned into Pixar because Disney was like, we want to make a movie called Toy Story. And then he made billions of dollars and owned half of Disney's stock or something like that when he died. And he went back to Apple and made billions other. But $10 billion is Steve Jobs' net worth. Mark Zuckerberg, the guy who invented Facebook, who's younger than me, by the way, is worth $70 billion. He doesn't own, face, he doesn't own Disney. He could probably buy it. <laughs> But it's not, you see what I'm saying? It's solely from this advertising dollar value. And we are all part of that, okay? So if you aren't defending yourself against this or your children against this, it's going to have a massive effect. It's already having a massive effect on our society. But like I said, this is not a new problem. It's just intensified by our current situation. When Jesus called his disciples, it's an interesting story. You have Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect man, God in flesh, doesn't commit a sin, but he also knows everything, or, you know, it's like he's God, right? And so he needs some, some guys to come around him to help him do his work. It was common in his day, rabbis had disciples, and they would teach people. You know, and there was actually ways they did this sort of thing. Like, you know, you would, everybody would go to kind of temple school. And they go, these guys look like the smartest ones. They would kind of set them aside. They would start, and they would kind of, it was almost like a hierarchy that would finally weed out to like, these are the most, it was a very prestigious position. These are the most worthy people. You will now be a disciple of this rabbi. And they would even talk like that. Their credibility in their framework came from where they came from, their pedigree or whatever, you know. And they would say stuff, I say on the authority of Rabbi such and such, who says on the authority of Rabbi such and such, who says on the Rabbi, you know, that this teaching, this kind of thing, you see? So they're building a case for why you should listen to me, you know? And then Jesus comes along and he's like, you may have heard it said, but I say, and they're like, who are you, you know? And so he's picking out who, who are going to be his guys that are his disciples. And as many of you know, he picks a very odd collection of people. This collection of people is not the religious elite. They're already adults in jobs, most of them. We don't actually know where some of these guys come from. A big collection of them are fishermen from one town. And then there's another guy who's a tax collector, which at that time, tax collector was like, you had to be pretty educated, 
But you also had to be kind of dishonest, or most of them were. And you kind of worked for the man because Rome was an occupying force. You're there taking money for Rome, but you, can't, you, know, you take a little extra or you can, you know, you're kind of the godfather type figure. You can, you're running society through manipulation and money. You're not a good guy. And most people are like, and you're working for the man. So, like, we don't like you, you know. Then he gets another guy who's referred to as a zealot, which is not a job position, but it's somebody who's, like, uh, living actively in a way that we, we think part of the responsibility of the Jewish people is to, through a military force, throw out these Roman people. And some of them were trying it and getting killed and stuff like that. So this collection of people isn't at all what you would think at the time would have been. And it might seem odd now. And I want to go through what happens because he gets these guys. And you might think, how unlikely, how strange. And, but God has this pattern of doing that. Even his election of the Jews, you can see all the way back in Deuteronomy 7, that God doesn't, when Jesus, when humanity falls and needs restoration. God's like, I will come and I will restore you. And for Jesus to be born in human flesh, he has to be born somewhere in some people. And God, you see the story in the Old Testament layout as God elects the Jewish people and Israel to be the bearer of the Messiah to the world. The salvation of the world is coming through these people and they know it and they've been prophesying it for a while. Um, Once Jesus finally comes, you know, and there's a lot to say about that, but the point is that he, he says in Deuteronomy 7 that I didn't pick you because you were like the biggest or the most powerful or the most anything. So he's got this pattern of doing this. But the disciples are humans like us. Lucky for them, they didn't have the social media and stuff that I've been talking about. But they run into some of the same problems that I think we find ourselves in exasperated by these social media. So as I go through these examples, you're going to go, well, we all do this. It's anytime there's people around, we do these kinds of things. Um, but uh, they uh, are just made worse in the public nature of the social media. So they say, I put this. One example of how the disciples are human like us is they want to be seen as closest to Jesus or they're fighting over who's the greatest. And you find this, and I'll read it out of Luke 9. And he says this, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, which is God. For it is is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. This is literally what Pastor Jeff was just quoting from before the break. But there's this fight in this structure these guys are in. I want to be the closest one. You know, there's another time where mom asks, like, when you go into ki- your kingdom, can my sons be on the left and right of you? And he's like, you don't even know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? But it's just a human thing. We all want to be the closest. I want you to see me as more spiritual or I want you to see me as deeper. Or You're fasting one day. I'm fasting a whole week. So, and frankly, it gets weirder if it's in like a spiritual world, you know, you're like, okay. I mean, you know, but, and there's nothing wrong with fasting a day or a week. I mean, the point is this other thing that we're just applying all this language to Another, th- another example, which this one, <laughs> in our culture now, this, you should definitely see. They want to call down fire on people. Online, they call that pile-on. You know, somebody says something stupid, and then a million people talk about how dumb that person is, or that person should be dead, you know. And here's the thing. I'm not surprised people do this kind of stuff. I'm extremely surprised Christian, or people who want to call themselves Christians think that's okay to do. Like, we're called to love our enemies. And this person says something dumb on the Internet. You want them to die, you know, and part of it is you don't really want them to die and you don't really mean any of it, but they're a brand now. They're not a human, they're a brand. So it doesn't matter if I say it about a brand, you know. 
They want to call down fire on people, Luke 9, 53, 54. But the people, but the people there did not welcome him. Oh, yeah. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and they have to stop by a Samaritan town. He sends some guys ahead, like, go get some stuff worked out before we get there. They get there. The people are not cool with that. They're like, nope, you're, a Jewish, you're Jewish. You're going to Jerusalem. We don't want you here. So the people did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> but Jesus turned and rebuked them. We do this kind of stuff all the time. You know, we think that God needs us like, what? You're going to say that about Christians? You're going to say that about God? Oh, you're like, God, you want me to call down fire on them to destroy them? Here's what God says back to you. He turns and rebukes you. So just think about that. Because these kind of pylons, the Christian pylons, are always about something that's so noble. You're not accepting Jesus in your town? We'll call down fire and wipe you out, you know? Here's another one. This is a very interesting one, I think. They want Jesus to present himself in a framework like this that people can understand. Because Jesus, they have a difficult relationship, the disciples and Jesus. There's times like Jesus asks them, like, who do they say that I am? They're like, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're... And they're like, well, who do you say that I am? Peter's like, I think you're the Messiah, which is a big deal. And Jesus is like, the Holy Spirit... You know, has revealed this to you. And so let me tell you a little bit more about it. And he's like, when I go, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to have to crucify me and all this. Things. And then Peter's like, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Stop with all that stuff. Like, that's not what messiahs do, you know. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. I was just like the holy, you know, all this, you know, the rock of the tree, you know, all this. Get behind me, Satan. So they have a difficult relationship. Jesus is, is obviously revealing him, his godly nature to them over and over again, and also at the same time showing them how their expectation of what God is like is not quite there in different ways. And Jesus says in these, like, so he's healing people. Like, this man is blind. Jesus prays for him. He's not blind anymore. You think everybody there will be, be into that? Read the book? They're not, you know? <laughs> That doesn't make sense to me at all. But you see how deep these power struggles get into people's... Like, you go, how can you see a blind guy be able to see again? And they go, we should probably kill the guy who did that. It's because of these things, these things that are affecting our brain, and we're doing the same thing. You just can't see it when you're stuck in it. Because you will... If and when, and, and when it does happen, when God heals people, the reaction is often that exact same thing. And it doesn't make sense except for, what did I say earlier? Not health, demonic. There's something evil affecting our brains. But they want Jesus to appear or show himself in ways that they understand. So I'm going to paraphrase this part. This is in Luke 9, 28 to 36. Jesus leads some of the disciples, Peter, John, and James, up with him the mountain to pray. And there's this incredible moment that happens where there's a light and thunder and stuff. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is standing there, and he's talking with Moses and Elijah. This is one of the most, this is called the transfiguration. And this is one of the most, this is a very important piece of the New Testament because it's showing the culmination of the Old Testament, all of the law represented by Moses, and all of the prophets found in Jesus. This is a big deal. And God is making a point of who Jesus is and all these sorts of things, which this is another message. 
But the point is this. So this happens, and Peter and them are like, whoa, okay, okay. And then Peter says something interesting. He goes, Master, it was good for us to be here. He goes, let us put up three shelters for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then it says, just to be nice, he didn't know what he was saying. Because we might go, gosh, this is so silly. But what he's, here's what I think is going on. It wasn't uncommon in this culture or any of these things for people to come on a pilgrimage to something, not even in just Jewish culture, but Middle Eastern culture and the, the way you would, you would interact with a deity, even a deity that we don't believe in. Like there was, you would come. Like Jesus is out there doing stuff. And as a follower of his, especially maybe the main one, Peter, who's talking, he's like, I don't always get what he's doing. You know, I'm confused by like, it's awesome, the healing, the blind guy. The eating the blood and the, you know, I don't, I mean, okay. You know, it's like there's confusion often, you know. and But this, this, well, yeah, okay. All those Pharisees and guys that are trying to kill you because you're healing and doing all this other stuff. Like, look, they, they'll get this. This Moses and Elijah, you can't get more Jewishy than that. I mean, like, this explains exactly who you are. Let me, let's take some, let's post this. Let's get it out there. Because they'll get it. Then I, and, and I think you, I can say this because it says he did not know what he was saying. I do think he meant well. But I think in the back of his mind somewhere, or at least we can find this when we're looking at it now, is then I won't look so crazy. Because <laughs> now you don't look crazy. I look crazy when I'm following you and you're doing all this crazy stuff. But when you stand here with Moses and Elijah, especially we set it all up, we can maybe charge admission. I mean, we'll look. We got this works. This works. While he was speaking, a cloud covered them. God's voice says, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. And then it's all gone, you know. I think we often want Jesus to submit to our culture. And they had the best one. You see what I'm saying? We're Americans. We're not Jews. We don't have a covenant with God that says the redeemer of humanity is coming through our people. We don't have that. We're Americans. We have our culture that's built on some Judeo-Christian values and all these other things. We have no covenant with Jesus or with God prophesying the arrival of Jesus. And they have the law and the prophets. These are great things. These are not bad. Okay, These are good things. They have the best possible version of wanting Jesus to kind of, you know, do this in a way everybody's going to get. And he still won't exactly do that. Because our, our, and it's not because there's anything wrong with any of that, okay? I don't want you to hear, I'm not saying there's, there was no limitation. Jesus fully submitted to God. He fully submitted to the law and the prophets. He didn't say, I came to abolish any of it. I came to fulfill it. So don't even try to go in any sort of weird way with that. What I'm trying to say is all of the good that God pours into all of that we build culture around it. And some of the culture, even at the time, obviously, because Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all these sorts of people, wasn't good, wasn't healthy. He was challenging them back to the pure thing that he had put in to the beginning anyway. And our tendency to do this, or being caught in our mind in this sort of weird way, is the thing I'm talking about, okay? Not the law, not the prophets, and any of that. So, but, far be it from us to try to get Jesus to submit to our culture, like, do something, God, in a way that everybody will understand and keep it that way. <laughs> I want people to think I'm cool. <laughs> Thank you. 
She gets it. You understand what I'm saying. And then at the end of this whole thing, when Jesus is finally going to his crucifixion, you know, they all deny him. Peter literally denies him. When people are like, hey, you're that guy's main follower guy. Oh, no, not me. I'm just here because I need to leave. And, you know, so everybody flees. So you might it, might, it leads to this question. Were these the right guys for this job? In any sort of humanly measurable way. And when we talk about, what did that quote say? Um, within a frame of reference that... It, it, that it defines our experiential world. In a frame of reference that we have, are these guys at all the right people for this job? As I'm praying about it, I feel like God said something to me. This is worth you submitting to your own prayer time with God, okay? Because we've talked about other things before, like King David gets anointed as king and then goes through this interesting pathway of becoming king, being a shepherd, a musician, all this stuff. And then when it comes time to slay giants, he's the only person through this training that he even understands how. He's like, I could throw a rock at that guy and kill him. And they go, what? You know, then it works. That's an interesting way of seeing like, wow, God, you really did, like, who would have thought? You know, or maybe even the Apostle Paul, like the boldness of this guy, before he encounters Jesus, he's like, I don't know what this Jesus Christian thing is, but it's messing everything up, so I need to kill all these people, and he's working on that. And, I th- and God looks down and goes, that's a guy I could use for some stuff, you know. But you go, that kind of makes sense. You know, I mean, he's bold. He's bold, you know. I need a bold guy, you know. But these guys, are they the right guys for the job? In any sort of frame of reference that we have to analyze that? And I think the answer is no. And you go, well, then, if Jesus is perfect, why did he do it? Or why, did, why these guys Interestingly, there's a verse about that. Mark 3.13 talks about that very moment. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. Have you ever thought about the fact that it could be as simple as these are the 12 guys Jesus wanted to be his disciple. They're all from such a small part of the world, such a small part of that country, not even the important part. A lot of them from one town. And it's not like the Beatles, you know, where you're like, well, you know, I guess they just got lucky. You know, it's like, it literally could just be that Jesus goes, these are the ones I want. And so why does that matter? Because that's exactly what Jesus is saying to all of us. If you call yourself a disciple, the disciples, these guys, once they got it back together after Jesus resurrected, he sent them out to make disciples in all of the world, of which we are some of those. If you're following Jesus as a disciple, You're one of those, and you're one that God wanted. And you think, if you're like me, great. So you say this whole frame of reference of all that stuff that you started talking so bad about doesn't work, but the solution is 
God loves you? Like, that's so juvenile, or that's so, ugh, you know, or how can I even feel that? I, I used to think this way. I would struggle with depression sometimes, and it was, uh, well, God loves me, though. You know, I was like, yeah, but God loves everybody. And then I saw this video, and I want you to watch this. This is a man named Rich Mullins, who was a Christian musician from back in the 80s and 90s. He died in a car accident, tragically. But I ran into this video on YouTube of him explaining God's love. And I, I just, rather than try to paraphrase it, just let the man say it himself. So just watch this. Sometimes I, I find it hard to pray, and maybe that's why I've written so many prayer songs is because it's easier if you sing sometimes. And uh, God may find it more entertaining than if you just say it too. Who knows? Except that I'm just not really all that sure that God is all that concerned about being entertained. I'm not sure except what that's just a, a human thing. Sometimes, you know, you try to pray, you try to impress God with all the right words. and I just don't think it's an easy thing to impress God Almighty, if you know what I mean. Is. And here's the thing that I think we often forget is that we don't have to impress Him. Because He's already knocked out about you. He already loves you more than you can imagine. I remember reading a thing that Picasso once said. I, I like to read what famous artists have to say because I can barely, I'm barely able to look at their paintings without <laughs> going into a coma trying to figure out what it's about. <laughs> but he said this one thing that I really did like. He said uh, that uh, good taste was the enemy of great art, which I think is very, very true. Good taste has all to do with being cultured and being refined. And if art has to do with anything, it has to be, do with being human. And one of the reasons I love the Bible is because the, the humans in the Bible are not very refined. They're uh, pretty goofy if you want to know the whole truth about it. And I remember when I was a kid and people would always say, uh, you know, because I was one of those typical depressed adolescent types. I wrote poetry and stuff. It's how morose I was as a kid. And people would go around saying, oh, cheer up, man, because God loves you. And I'd always say, big deal. God loves everybody. That don't make me special. That just proves that God ain't got no taste. And I don't think he does. Thank God. Because God takes the junk of our lives and He makes the greatest art in the world out of it. And if He was cultured, if He was as civilized as most Christian people wish He was, He would be useless to Christianity. But God is a wild man. And uh, I hope that uh, the course of your life you encounter Him. But let me warn you, you need to hang on for dear life. Or let go for dear life. Maybe it's better. The idea that God has no taste may be offensive if you hear that wrongly. But 
think it, you find its origin when Jesus is encouraging to be childlike, to even enter the kingdom of heaven. Kids don't have any taste. You see kids like the, the clothes your kids put on? They haven't learned how that looks bad yet. And then we've got to teach them, you know. Sometimes to their detriment, probably. But I'm going to play a song at the end here, guys, that I want you to encounter God through. I recorded this several years ago. I was working on some new music, a new album, which I still haven't. <laughs> I got distracted working on a building for a while, so I didn't. But now that I'm back working on it, I started digging through some stuff that I'd I never deleted it, but I'd recorded a few things. I got together with some of the guys that we played together at the House of Prayer and uh, recorded some stuff, and I went through it. I was like, I don't like any of this. It's all junk, you know. And I, uh, thinking what I'm thinking this week about God using the junk of your lives, you know. I, uh, I've struggled in the past um, to... Uh, I don't want to be just waste anything. The, it's hard to judge, you know, what he's talking about, great taste, great art, and all this kind of stuff. You go, man, what does that even mean, and how do you even know if this song is good, and all this kind of stuff, and I was leaving it up just to myself, so I listened through something, that's bad, that's bad, that's also bad, that's also bad, all of this is bad, <laughs> and it's not an uncommon artsy-fartsy problem, um, but... I've been feeling challenged by God, like him saying something like, maybe I should have an opinion <laughs> as to <laughs> what's good and what's not, and not your taste, which seems to be arbitrary and random at times. And in that mindset, I went back and started digging through some things, and I found a recording, and I was like, maybe that's not half bad. So I started fiddling with it a little, and then as I was listening to it, I was like, oh, I get it. And it's just, an old, it's just a kind of a live version. We were just singing about the what can wash away my sins, what can, you know, that whole song. And I was listening to it while I was working on this, and I heard it. I was like, ah, oh, what can make me whole again? I get it now. You know, so often we talk about, you know, especially something like this. You might hear me, like I said at the beginning, now, now, all of this, you need to stop which is true. And some of us need to actually repent of things we've done online. That's between you and God. But what can wash away your sins? You, a lot of times we stay there. But then God was saying, like, but if this quote that I read at the beginning by some sort of existential psychologist is at all true, and I believe it is, if you stop all that stuff, there's still a hole. And it's like, what can, and then all of a sudden, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So I want you to listen to this um, recording that I made, which I will put, I will, it's going to be a part of the next thing that I do. It's still a work in progress, so I was reluctant to even play it, because this is just four guys playing music, and I mixed it a little. It's not like finished, but I think it's important. And during this time, if you want to just receive this song, um, do that, and if you want to come forward and spend some time praying with God to make a declaration about something in your life, please do. Don't miss an opportunity. I'll just do it sitting here. It'll probably be helpful 
to you to come and do that kind of business with God here at the altar. It's not that this is more holy. It just helps to be active. And if you want prayer, I'll pray with you. Pastor Kevin, we can pray, like other people can pray with you. Um, but I want you to spend some time with God while this song is playing, and then Jason's going to come up at the end and close it out. So if you want to come forward and pray, come forward and pray. And if not, just listen to this.